Welcome to Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Stories We Don't Tell is a monthly event in Toronto that features candid stories of strength and resilience. I threw out my prayers, they went flying like balloons. The air whipped our hair, we went shooting down the valley. Knuckles gripped upon the handles, shivers rushing down my spine. What's the blood on its Tell me when you're home, I'll be there until you fall asleep. My phone blinks just after 10 p.m. and I glance over, read its contents, and start looking for my bag. I like to think that I'm liked. Actually, let me rephrase that. I need to know that I am. I'll agonize for days over an awkward goodbye or the possibility of someone taking something I said wrong. It's hard for me to place why I am this way, but from what I can remember, I always have been. Now, some people might call that pathological. And I would agree, because I want them to like me. From what I can tell, it's in my nature. And currently, it's a problem. I throw my slowly disintegrating shoulder strap over my head and clamber up the stairs. It's a problem because I'm in love with a man I'll never meet. It's an unrequited affair that may be based more on on what he did and who he was, the people I care about. But certainly love has been built on far less. The seven bus comes quickly, and I find a good spot at the back. Olive's grandfather, who is really more of a father to her than anyone else, resonates through the muddied windows and settles into my bones. I saw him only once, in passing. We never spoke. He never knew I existed, and for good reason. And yet here I sit, the bus thundering through the night streets northbound to the tip of the city, because my marching orders have arrived, and I'm shipping out to my post. I tell myself he could have respected that. The sighting occurred as I sat in her Starbucks nearly two years before. It was early in our relationship, but even then, if you'd asked me whether we were meant for each other, I'd have bet you a $20 bottle of wine that we'd last. And in fact, I did. Olive walked her grandparents past me towards the door and smiled in my direction as they passed. I knew even then there would not be an introduction and that likely there never would be. I would see him in countless pictures after the fact and learn much about him there. How he fought in World War II and how he defined himself by his time at war for the rest of his life. A decorated Canadian Jew who fought against the Nazis and won. A legacy anyone could be proud of. His civilian life centered around his wife, whom he still provides for even after his passing. Because he was a man of his times and all things that came with it. Olivia was his favorite. The bus ground to a halt outside the brownish 1970s-style apartment building, and I, make, I take us the small walkway in between the greenery, cross the silent parking lot, and I'm lucky enough to catch someone exiting the building, so I slide into the slow-as-hell elevator, and I stand at attention. His death called me here, a young 20-something trying to do his best and desperately hoping that it was enough. I spent a while researching the logistics of getting a game that she and her brother had loved for Windows 95 to work on her MacBook, but ultimately the setup proved beyond my ability, and so I backed down my fears and allowed myself to to think that I'm here at least helping. I mean, I'm supposed to be good at this stuff. I pride myself in it, but I find myself floundering. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. Nothing, from, nothing about his exit from this world was terribly surprising, except perhaps the length at which he was able to save it off. 
He defeated cancer once, only to have it return years later. On his final night, he sat in palliative care, and the man who I'd been told was basically immortal slowly slipped away. I knew this day would come, and I always wanted to be ready, while never really knowing what to expect. I was not to go to the funeral. Given that the fact that I was a Gentile was enough to keep me from meeting him in life, to have me there could be seen as disrespect. I was not to go to the Shiva either, for Olivia's mother felt like the week-long mourning period in Jewish tradition was not the place for me to meet the family, and who was anyone to argue with the woman who just lost her father? So in the end, this was my commitment. Each night, tell me when you're home, I'll be there until you're falling asleep. The elevator's doors open and I take three lefts, walk to the end of the hall, and the door's on the right. I text my arrival and Olive pulls the door open slowly, making sure to pat down the clear plastic doormat that has a habit of bunching up. A quick embrace and perhaps unnecessarily whispered hellos precede me removing my shoes. Her mother's already in her room sleeping soundly, and so I aim to tread as quietly on the thick carpeted floors as possible, and I follow her into the living room. The room is adorned with massive cross stitches of her mother's making and pictures of family on almost every single surface. I take a seat on the couch as Olivia finds us dense glass cups to hold our boxed red wine. And to my right is the balcony. It overlooks a cemetery and had served as a refuge for us before when the tables had been turned. She sat with me there just after I learned of a friend's unexpected passing. I remember not really knowing how to react or respond, or even move. She'd asked me questions about him, and I'd answered them, held my hand when it needed to be held, stood with me at my father's door as I spoke to his father, who had amazingly remembered my childhood home. She came with me to the funeral, and as we sat in the wooden pews of the back of the church, surrounded by hundreds of supremely capable and yet far too young individuals, all powerless in the face of the unquenchable thirst of grief. But tonight... There's only us two. We'll talk, and then watch something, or perhaps just sit in silence, heads rested into the nooks of each other's bodies that you discover over time. The night will wear on, and we'll decide that starting a movie just minutes before 2 a.m. really just makes sense. Tell me when you're home. I'll be there till you're falling asleep. It's 4 a.m., and I sleepily make my way out of the sixth-floor apartment and stumble towards the elevator. There's a peacefulness that comes with the middle of the morning, which somehow permeates the cement walls. I await the slowly rising elevator, one that he must have known far better than I, and exit out the building into the small parking lot, cross the four lanes of dead road, and await my bus back. Because this is what being a man of my times is. This is my sense of duty. And I would like to think that her grandfather would at least be able to respect that. I may never know the worst things he ever saw, but I like to think I've seen a few of the best. I know what it means to want to help so badly that you'd do anything to be given the chance. I know what it's like to look at someone and see a, per a better person than they themselves see when they sit, when they look in the mirror. I may not know true grief, but I do know devotion. Tell me when you're home. I'll be there till you're falling asleep. Last week, 
we, Paul and I sat down and had a conversation about stories about people that we are not necessarily, well, stories that include people who we're not necessarily in contact with anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this week, we just heard a story that you told about an ex of yours. Yes. And we're going to talk about telling stories about people that we are still in touch with, but perhaps our relationships have changed. Yeah. Um, well, specifically in this case, they're, they're both exes. Yeah. By perhaps, they mean definitely. Yeah. Because like, I think there's also another one we should do, maybe a third follow-up to this, which is stories about people who are in the room. Um, but yeah, so we're talking about this time about talking about exes who are not in the room necessarily. Right. Not necessarily in the room. Like, because in fact, it might be strange. It happens. Yeah. But some people might think it's strange that you would be in a long-term relationship with someone and then be broken up for multiple years, and then they would come to your intimate storytelling event where you told the story about them. But they do. I know. I wouldn't think it was strange, no, obviously. Yeah. I've, 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 I almost had that, actually. Yeah. Uh, I actually had to warn one of my exes that the story was she was going to bring her uh, current boyfriend to an event. It's like, just so you know, I'm telling a story about our breakup. Yeah. Uh, and then I sent her the story, yeah, which is not the story you just heard, right? Uh, but is but did happen, uh, and that was that was a, like it, the conversation worked out fine. Uh, we're still friends, um, but she did not show up to that event with a date. Yeah, okay. But so then this story that we did just hear, mm-hmm. did you also share that? I did with this lovely lady who I've actually never met. No, she's she's a mystery to everyone. Yeah, she's a mystery. A version of this story I had already I may have already shared with her. Because uh, it, it was this was something that I'd written a while mm, before. There was an essay version of this story. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it was much shorter and not as good. Uh, but I think I did. But I don't remember. I do. Uh, but I remember definitely sending this, sending the new version to her before I told it. Just being like, "Hey, uh, I don't, I, I don't even know how I prefaced it because I was sort of like, just hey, I'm going to be presenting this thing. It you might hear it eventually. So mm-hmm. here's a copy of it. Yeah. And did you hear back from her about it? Yeah. Was she like rad, bro? Uh, yeah, basically. Uh, well, the story you, you just heard it, so the story is not um, right. She doesn't look bad in it. Anyway. No, no, the story is the story is like quite. Well, it's not about your breakup. No, no, yeah, it's not. It's it's very much just about this moment in time where I was, I was trying to be the best boyfriend I possibly could be and didn't really know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it had a little bit. You know, there's also little bits about it that was sort of like parts of a relationship that we didn't really talk about so much uh, when we were dating, mm-hmm. uh, but. Yeah, this, this, no one comes off poorly in the story. The story is just more of just like this weird, this weird time that of, of our lives that we shared. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the response was not was 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 positive in all the ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, at least that she told me. Maybe she hated it. Uh, you also uh, stole the story, and did you tell him? Yeah. So we're at the end of this conversation. We're going to hear a story that I told. I was in a headspace where I thought he was behaving poorly, which. T- as you will soon hear, which tells you more about my headspace than his behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so this was like the third story that I had told about this relationship in various ways. Mm-hmm. There's a story that I told that's about another breakup and then um, how this gentleman and I got together. And then there's a story that I told about our, we were together for five and a half years. So, uh, and then I have a story that I told about our breakup. And then this one was a story that I told about uh, right around when my dad died. So it wasn't about my dad dying, but it was about the person that I became while I was grieving, and uh, and he was there for that. And so the first two stories that I told that he was in, actually he was in the room for. Mm-hmm. So both of those times I had felt like I really definitely needed to warn him because, you know, you don't want to be blindsided by that. And throughout all of this, like throughout 
um, us having this essay group where I was obviously writing about this kind of stuff and, and the event, he's been kind of aware of where I'm at. We'll talk about it sometimes and I'll let him know cause it's helpful for processing. Um, and so he had heard those and then this time he wasn't there. So the story that we're about to hear, he was not in the room for. So we had to go to this city an hour outside Toronto for this ridiculous ritual, which is a pre-wedding fundraiser that couples have only in Ontario and Alberta, I think. Uh, so we had to go to a stag and doe in Hamilton and we drove and it was while I was working on this piece. So I read him an earlier draft of it in which it was perhaps less clear that I was like. Being unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah, less clear. So he was like, you know, <laughs> that was a pretty frustrating situation to be in. And it's not that clear here. <laughs> so we kind of had a, we ended up having a conversation about this thing that this fight that we had like in 2009, mm-hmm. which was obviously at this point six years ago. <laughs> uh, so I'd read that to him. And then I think I, I showed him a further along draft, probably the one that I actually read at the event. And he was like, yes, I get this more now. Mm. So it's, I think maybe it's a testament to these people that we've had in our lives that we can basically share these things with us, with them and say, you know, here's the story that I'm telling you're in it, but it's clearly not about you. And one of the things that he says the most actually with the stories that he ends up in is he's like, you always remember me way better than I remember myself. (laughs) Like he's always just flattered basically by how he comes off in these stories, even though they're like breakup stories and stuff. So Mm. The moral of the story is that if you're telling a story about someone that you still know, be nice about it. Well, so that, I was that's not gonna, the moral. No, I was going to ask this question because I think the actual, the, perhaps the most interesting part of this conversation or this question is, does it change how you're actually writing the piece? Mm-hmm. You know, knowing that they're, they will probably read it, hear it. You know, knowing that, know, and knowing that like, you're going to have to answer to it. Yeah, you know, totally. it's, it's like you can't, you, you, these people, you see these people, you can't, if you, if you stand up there and say a piece that, is just blatantly unfair, like they will call you on it yeah. because you are, you know, lying or whatever. And I think it's, that question was something that, um, it like, especially, so exes are a very specific weird thing. Yeah. Uh, mainly because it's weird to write a piece about how much you felt for someone when you don't, when after it's over, because you're stuck in this weird middle ground of, I want to convey the feelings, but also you, it's weird to write a piece saying how great a person is that you used to be deeply in love with and then perform that piece. Yeah. Without it sounding like you're weirdly hung up on them. Exactly. Maybe maybe people think that about us. That's very possible. I don't know. Um, but like, it's it's like, it's, 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 it's an odd line to walk, right? You have to sort of explain, you have to sort of somehow explain that like, this was a very, very real thing at this very, at this time. And these were all the very real feelings they have. And, I guess we're just told by society that you're not allowed to continually having feelings for someone after you after break up. You're just like you have to think they're awful. Basically, society tells us. Yeah, or like uh, you're not allowed to remember anything good about them. Yeah, which is a real problem. This kind of came up in the last week too. Um, it's a real problem about breakup stories. Sometimes is that when we do break up with people, we often forget the good parts, mm-hmm. and so you get these breakup stories where there's a villain, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, you have to tell us why this person was so special to you. Um, and so we're caught up in this, like, sometimes we tell stories that are only about that, I guess. Yeah. 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 And like, or something else about it. That's the other thing, right? It's finding that, finding that piece. You know, I think that's the other thing. Really, ultimately the story has to be about something else. 
Mm-hmm. And in your relationship can be the backbone, but it has to be about something else. Yeah, it's not just about how much you love someone and then you're not with them now. Yeah, because that's weird. That would be weird. That'd be really weird. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's like, you know, like the story we just heard from me was really about my relationship with this with this man I never met. Yeah, with a ghost. Uh, with a ghost, exactly. Um, and in that inter- in like that experience, like, it, you know, who wasn't a ghost the entire time. I was my relationship with a living person who just would refuse to see me. Right. Um, but like, so that was the point. Like, the, and, and the relationship was obviously a, a, a very large part of that. And, and it was the, it was the, the was, you know, the basis for the whole story. But I think it was. I like to think that I don't come off as like weirdly hung up on it because you know that wa- that wasn't the point of the story mm-hmm. to some extent. Yeah, and it, and in some of these stories, I think it might not be clear that we are not with this person anymore. Oh yeah, for sure. Like it's a moment when we were with them, and that's the whole thing. That's the moment that the story takes place in, right. and you just know from context of knowing us if that we're not with them anymore. I think uh, to go back to a question that you asked like eighty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, about whether or not it informs how we write about this kind of thing, knowing that they might hear it because we are still Mm -hmm. in contact with them and might share it with them directly, for example, or they (laughs) might be the audience. I think it kind of goes the other way, actually, that like because I am still in contact with him and I still know how he thinks about or I have him as a resource to kind of fact check this kind of stuff. Like here's how I remember it. How do you remember it? Or whatever. He comes off as more human just because of that, because he is still real and human to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Which isn't to say that when you write about someone that you don't talk to anymore, they become like a terrible villain. But there's a reason. There's a reason that this guy and I are still friends, whereas some of my exes and I aren't friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that plays into it more than the fear of what they'll think if they hear it. Right. Yeah. That's that makes sense. Yeah. Like, well, I feel like you perhaps you feel more. Uh, owner, you, not ownership. You feel a duty to them to paint them as 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 true as you possibly can, mm-hmm. or at least as true as you saw it at that time. Like that's the key. I think that, that if there's one part of it that ends up being the backbone for you to land is that you're landing on a backbone of this was true to me then, mm-hmm. uh, and anything else after that is sort of uh, uh, you have to you have to center on that and then and then write the story. And if you try to veer off in any way, you can, then you then that's when you lose it in some way. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes what was true is that you're really mad at someone for something that they obviously have no control over. And then you write the story and Stefan tells you that your draft doesn't make it clear how incredibly unreasonable it is, even in your final version, and that you should have made it clear how much time passed at the end of the story when you maybe locked someone out of a room, as in the story that we're about to hear. What? What a segue. That's crazy. Yeah. Didn't see that one coming. I know. Uh, but well, was, well, here is Brienne yeah. uh, telling the story about how she very reasonably uh, locked someone outside. It felt reasonable at the time. I jolt awake and realize that I'm alone in our brightly lit bedroom. I hate sleeping with the lights on, as you know, because if I wake up in the night, it makes it so much harder to fall back to sleep. Left to your own devices, I know that you would sleep with the lights on every night. Left to your own devices, you would probably do all of your sleeping on the couch, too. I wonder if that's where you are now. I pad into the living room and find you there, on the couch, asleep, with your electric toothbrush hanging out of your mouth, still buzzing. What the fuck? You jolt awake, too. You turn off your toothbrush and give a confused glance at the backpack you've been using as a pillow. It's not a bad couch, really. A few months ago, I crept out of our bed, 
you were asleep in it then, and made a nest for myself there. I curled up around my laptop and a new episode of Gossip Girl, and I waited for the sun to rise. We would be driving to Kitchener the next morning to say goodbye to my dad, begin that sort of nursing home vigil. You needed to drive, which is why I left you alone asleep in our dark bedroom. I just needed to get out of the dark. I look at you on the couch and wonder what you're trying to escape from. Is it me? Is it the sadness that has filled up my body and our room and our apartment? You know how much I hate sleeping alone now, how much I hate sleeping with the lights on. You blink at me and I storm off into the bathroom. I am seething. I can't believe you wanted to get away from me so badly that you didn't even notice your toothbrush was still on when you fell asleep. I mean, what is that? What kind of person falls asleep with a vibrating fucking accessory hanging out of his mouth, with his backpack as a pillow, with all the lights on? with his girlfriend curled up just 10 feet away. After we got to Kitchener, there was nothing to do but wait. I spent the next night in the extra long reclining wheelchair that they had finally sourced for my dad. My stepmom was trying to sleep in the room's only armchair, waking up angrily whenever a nurse came in to take dad's temperature. Just let him rest. Let us all rest. You slept in a little room off the main visitor's lounge on a love seat with the lights and the TV on. There was a window into the room so everybody could see you snoozing, but you didn't seem to mind. You drove my stepmom home the next afternoon so she could shower and send email updates about things at the nursing home. I was talking to dad's sleeping body when the death rattle started. My aunt was the first to notice, so I called you. You sped over and my stepmom came in just in time to catch his last breath. My aunt tells me that you learned to recognize that rattle after you've sat through enough of these things. I was surprised to find my vision closing in. My biological inclination to faint continues to sneak up on me. With dad's body still warm in the bed, all eyes had turned to me while you ran out to the nurse's station to get some juice to restore my flagging blood sugar. That night, we both slept on the long couch in the living room. It had been my bed since my bunk beds came down after I left for college, since my dad started sleeping in the guest room when my stepmom could no longer care for him on the scant sleep she was able to get while also sharing his bed. One year at Christmas, he sat on my sleeping body and then fell to the ground, surprised and disoriented to find me there. I helped him secure his robe and eased him into his lazy boy while searching for the 24-hour news channel that he liked to watch in the morning. Instead of sleeping in that lazy boy, you'd spent the entire night on the couch with me so that I had something to hold on to every time I woke up sobbing and remembering that after years of disappearing, my dad was finally gone. When I leave the bathroom, you are standing outside the door holding your toothbrush. I storm past you back to the bedroom, pointedly turning off the lights along the way. I slam the bedroom door behind me and turn the thumb lock. If you want to sleep out there on the couch so badly, I'm not going to stop you. I curl up around the ratty teddy bear I still sleep with and squeeze my eyes shut in the dark. I feel a twinge of satisfaction as I hear you try the door handle. You knock softly, asking me to unlock the door. You obviously wanted to sleep out there. Don't come back in here on my account. You insist that it was an accident, that you didn't mean to fall asleep out there on the couch with your toothbrush still running, that you didn't mean to leave me in bed alone with all the lights on. 
I tell you that I'm fine alone, and I squeeze my eyes tighter, trying to fall back to sleep. We'd barely been living together a month when we took that trip to Kitchener. When we first moved in, I tried to establish some domesticity by unpacking the kitchen while you were at work. When I got the call to come home, I left the steeping French press on the kitchen table and a heat ring formed on the wood while I tried to make sense of the news coming from the other end of the line. Since we got back, I'd barely been feeding myself. You drive me to class most days and then pick me up an hour later. You go to bed when I want to go to bed and you run interference when my mother tries to contact me and you chop up vegetables to supplement the frozen pizzas that have become a staple of our diet. You stop reading whenever I stop reading because you always fall asleep with the lights on, which I hate. And then tonight when I woke up with all the fucking lights on, you weren't even there beside me. I realize you're still knocking on the door, still asking to come get into bed with me. I tell you to sleep on your couch in the brightly lit living room like you so obviously wanted. I start to nod off again. You persist. The next time I wake up to your knocking, I unlock the door and let you in, feeling very small. I curl up as tightly as I can and you crawl in beside me. For another night, you hold me. For another night, you hold my whole world together. While I wasn't looking, I don't know how I could repay you for the I'm Brienne, you can follow me on Twitter at Venice B. I'm Paul, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey Paul Dore. And I'm Stefan. You can follow me on Twitter on at, 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 at Stayho underscore. Thanks to Rayana for the theme music to this podcast. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at rayana.ca. This episode of Stories We Don't Tell has been brought to you by Deep Voices. 